right, everybody. So today we have a roundtable with myself, Brian Borstein, and actually Abel. So, you know, I've always said Chibai, and I had a uh, recent uh, patient from Macedonia. Macedonia? You're originally, you live in Macedonia now, right? Yeah. Um, but you're but Hungarian. I'm, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure he said he was Hungarian because we were talking about your last name. And he uh-huh. said it's, it's uh, well, he thought there was no I, and he said it's like Chaba. And then he said Chabai. Is that actually yeah, more accurate? Y- yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, but, nice. but like, so Got like it. that's, but, but that, like, I would never correct someone for not saying it like that because I, I don't think that's, so in Hungarian, we have a lot of these closed vowels, which like, mm-hmm. like basically no other language has. Uh, maybe Finnish, I think that that has, but uh, like Hung- Hungarian and, and Finnish, like those two languages are the only one in that weird like language group. So it's not belonging to any of the Germanic mm-hmm. or whatever. So yeah, it's Chaboy. Uh, nice. That would be the, but like, if you say Chabai, like that's, I mean, that, that's, that's better than 99% of people will yeah. ever say it. So well, hey, I'm very happy with that. friendship. I already I got it down. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He also Absolutely. told me that when people don't have the eye and it's Chaba, that it's a common like thing to make fun of people and say chubby and that they hate that. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Chubby. I mean, that's um, so actually Chaba that that's a, that's an, that's a last name. Right. In yeah. Hungarian. So Chaba literally means like someone from Chaba. Because okay. it's the last name, but also the name of a, a place, place, right? Yeah, yeah. cool. But but don't worry. Like my my wife is now also called Shabai, and even she doesn't say it right. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's enough history for today. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so today we are diving into a couple topics. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, my coaching with Steve, and I think probably the main topic is going to be uh, everything with like the biomechanics and Casim and Doug Brignoli and all of that. So. Uh, also, I was just going to mention related to the fitness industry. You guys saw Derek from More Plates, More Dates is on Joe Rogan. I don't know if you guys caught that at all. I saw some someone post something about that, like a little swipe yeah. on Instagram or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I told kinda. Abel last night, I think I, I told him, I was like, if if there was ever a feeling I had of like a, like, a, oh man, like that seems like it should be me kind of a thing because I've already thought like Derek and I had a lot of similarities, like more than people would even guess, like with our backgrounds and whatnot. Um, but like the topics were obviously like bodybuilding, endocrinology, MMA, and actually like a significant section on like dentistry, veneers and fillers. And I was like, it's, this is, this is my podcast. So, <laughs> um, it, it's actually very good though. Anybody listening, I would definitely recommend checking out. He did a great job. Um, I mean, so like the thing is that um, when you say it should be you, do you like do you mean you should be in place of Derek or Joe interviewing him? Not no, no. I mean, don't get me wrong. Derek absolutely deserves to be on there. I'm just like jokingly saying like if if I were to have a podcast on Joe Rogan, it would be so similar to that. Be like the topics discussed were like exactly my wheelhouse. Like just everything uh, they talked about would be the things that we would probably discuss if I made it on the show. But the yeah, so I I just said because like if you were on there, like you actually like you would be like a top top expert on a couple of things, like like dentistry, for example. Mm-hmm. But like I don't know, like it's just so funny the whole Derek phenomenon to me because um he's very successful, but he is like such an atypical like persona mm-hmm. in that regard because uh, I, I don't know if I would call him like a top notch expert in it, like maybe in hair loss, maybe mm-hmm. he would be. Yeah. But in all the other stuff, like he's mainly just um, 
saying pretty basic stuff, yeah, like reiterating other people's takes on on stuff and using a bunch of fancy words like deploy and contractile tissue and yeah, yeah, in- yeah. individuals every single time, not people, like never ne- never anything else. It's like I don't know. Um, it's just so weird to me that, um, but at the same time, he crushed this amazing business that he has, which for a very long time, I don't, I don't even know if anybody knew about that, that he has like a TRT clinic. Like I don't even yeah. know how that came mm-hmm. about. So it's like, he's a very, whole, very interesting. I think he blew up for, I mean, one, so his vocabulary, I mean, I guess you could say he has a good vocabulary, but also he also specifically uses words, like you said, that probably a lay person wouldn't use that. He, like you said, he like deploys super physiologic amounts of this exogenous hormone. And, you know, it just, it, the way, but it appeals to some people who it's like, Oh, well, that sounds intelligent. Um, and I do think he's, he's definitely a reasonably intelligent guy. And he actually, and yeah. he does talk about some things that most people probably don't talk about when it comes to um, health parameters and ways to mitigate that damage from like peds and things like that. Uh, at least again, yeah. it's becoming more and more popular, but I would say the stuff that he talks about now, certainly like five years ago, very few people were talking about it. So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to like discredit him or anything like that. No, no, no. So definitely. Yeah. All right. So, uh, as far as the last few weeks, so Kasim has been talked about Brian, you and Nunez were the two that really, I heard about Kasim the most from like within my circle. And I even told Kasim, I was like, to be honest, I don't know much about you. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I knew he was like a biomechanics guy. Uh, and I knew Nunez had a lot of good things to say about him in terms of exercise selection, but I didn't, I didn't know much. So I guess we'll start with like, how did you hear about him? I mean, now he, he's nearby you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, how did I hear about him? It's a really good question, to be honest. I feel like I stumbled across him right maybe in the first few months of the pandemic. And that was when N1 stuff was taking off. I think mm-hmm. it, it had to have been through the N1 uh, like lap pull down, like the single arm lap pull down thing that he was doing. And somehow one of those videos made it across made it to my attention, whether someone like tagged me in it or like, you know, sent me a story or something along those lines. Mm. And then I started kind of following him and digging in. And, um, I realized that he was in Denver. You know what? It may have even been through, uh, Paul Carter lift run bang. And, uh, and I think he may have been the one that was posting about all this stuff because he had just attended the N1 camp in like Texas somewhere. So he was posting about all of these different moves that he had learned. And I was like, oh, I should probably go follow this Kasim guy. Um, so that was like, yeah, maybe two years ago, a little less than two years, something like that. Found out he, uh, was operating in Denver. I thought he was like in Denver proper. So I was kind of like, eh, whatever. There's a bunch of people there. Like that's an hour for me. It's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Found out later that he's actually in, that he was in Longmont, which is where my mom lives like 15 minutes from me. And then more recently he moved to gun barrel, which is seven or eight minutes from me. Oh, so wow. literally like right down the road. Um, and it's just been a super cool opportunity to be able to, to connect with him and, uh, and learn stuff from him as well. Yeah. Well, so Abel, you were saying a little bit about how some of this stuff, because again, I, it's hard for me to comment too much just because I don't, I haven't looked into it that much, but you were saying Abel that some of his material you'll exclusively find with him and that you can't even really find this stuff in like textbooks or online, uh, maybe elaborate on that. Yeah. So if you 
look at his material on Instagram, for example, on biomechanics and explaining. I mentioned the lats. So if you go on, I mean, if if you go on most people's material who are talking that are discussing biomechanics, you will find that, okay, like the lats have like two main functions, which is this. So that will be shoulder extension. And then you have shoulder adduction. Those are the two main functions. And uh, depending on the person that you're following, they will say that like either one of those is more important. Um, but, but that's what you will find even in like, I don't know, like, um, legitimate, like muscle functional anatomy material that you would find on Wikipedia, or if you search on YouTube or, uh, I don't know, like, I, I think even in textbooks for the most part, and then Kasim will talk about like, no, it's actually, so you have the thoracic fibers of the lats and you stretch those out like this. And then you shorten them like this. And then you have the lumbar fibers and the iliac fibers. And then that's why you need like all kinds of different movements that are better at at targeting either one of those areas. And if you just Google those terms, like iliac fiber, lats, lumbar fiber, lats, like any of those, like you will not find any hits. Maybe Kasim's Instagram page will come up among the search results, but Instagram has a pretty bad search function. So maybe not even that. So like literally you will not find anything on that. Um, and, and same thing with like the lateral delts, like why, like you can only really lengthen them by doing it behind the back. Um, so a lot of these things, which I just haven't been able to come across anywhere else, which again, which doesn't mean at all that he's wrong. Like he could be actually a pioneer and I know they do all kinds of cool lab experiments there. Uh, so that's why I actually booked, uh, or I'm trying to book a consultation with him and, and actually pick his brain, um, very selfishly, like, please explain to me, like, um, how does this work? And can I learn about this more somewhere? Maybe there is a textbook, which I just haven't come across on this. Uh, but he, it seems like he has some unique ideas and he could be either a pioneer or, um, or I don't know. <laughs> shyster. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Oh, I said a shyster. I don't know really anything about him, um, like as far as like the background, but it was funny because when I looked up his, I don't remember how I came across it. I looked up him and Ben Pakalski because I think he's pretty vocal about how they don't have a good uh, relationship there. And I found a video of him talking about this like functional medicine stuff from like four or five years ago. I was like, oh, this looks pretty uh, woo woo, I guess you could say. And, and so like, I was like, oh, because like, for whatever, I, I think just because of you, Brian and uh, Nunez, like you guys had, in my mind had vetted him, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, he's the expert in, in this area. Um, and you know, which you really should never do. I mean, of course, it's human nature to think, oh, somebody I trust, trust him, but it's, you should always vet somebody individually. But when I saw that video, which if I get Cassin back on, I'm going to have to ask him about like, more of his actual like background there. But I was just kind of like, okay, maybe it's not like so clear cut. And then you had the stuff with Doug, which I asked Doug if he would want to come on and have a kind of roundtable with Cassin, which he said he wasn't interested in. But, um, you know, Doug's stuff is more, I don't want to say it's like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting how different their perspectives are. My opinion on why a lot of people are gravitating towards Doug is it's people who will say, oh, well, I've been doing this and I feel so much better. But that doesn't mean it goes along with the claims that Doug is saying it's more effective. To me, it's just like, well, that's great that you feel better because you're using lightweight, you're using isolations and, and like machines and things like that. Like, of course, you're going to be in less pain. 
but I think the big discussion here is what's actually more effective. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the Doug stuff almost seems to me like it's targeting an older market. I feel like a lot of those movements and the machine type stuff is like something I would expect people to do in their like forties, fifties, sixties, as their body either has like potentially broken down or they've, you know, had injuries over the course of their life. And like, these are different ways that they can continue to train and stimulate the muscle without inducing kind of maybe some of the same joint stress you would get with a more compound, like heavy loaded type focus. Yeah. Um, I find Cassim stuff to almost be like an intermediary though, between like Doug stuff on one extreme and then just like bro bodybuilding on the other side where it's like, you know, bench pressing with the elbows out here, Mm -hmm. um, versus kind of sliding down into a little more of a, of a comfortable pattern there. And I've seen these things with Cassim stuff, like in my training and with people that I coach and stuff, I've seen anecdotally the, the, Oh, you know, my shoulder would jam up when I'm pressing out here. Um, or I feel like, you know, potentially it's more front delt that I'm, that I'm using. And then as the elbows tuck in just slightly, and you find that rotation where the shoulder joint can move more freely and it kind of adducts as it comes across the body, those movements, um, feel better and subjectively seem to target the muscle a little more effectively. So there's also like some longevity and sustainability pieces in, in what Kasim is is saying as well. Interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I would agree that. Doug stuff is probably more suited towards somebody who's maybe like past their heavy lifting prime and muscle building prime and all of that. But that's the problem is that's not what he says at all. You know, people in the comment section might say that, but he's like, no, this is actually the best way to do it. And that's where I just, yeah, I I have a hard time agreeing with that stuff, Um, especially with the legs. I mean, I know he'll post, it's funny because he'll post like about how, you know, we'll say, well, look at all the bodybuilders who have done it this way. And then he says, well, that's because they didn't know about this or that. And he'll say, like, you can't like, use those examples. And then he'll say, here's these 10 people that have like testimonies in my book, right? And, which is really almost completely irrelevant. And then he'll then post a picture of his legs and say, look at this, this was built with these exercises. So it's like, well, can we use examples of people and they're one anecdote or not, you know, cause you're kind of doing both. And I also don't at all believe that the majority of his muscle was built with sissy squats and scapular retractions. I just don't believe it. Like, you know, you're coming from an era of like, I think the seventies and eighties, like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe it. Actually. Um, what I, what I've been thinking about on this whole topic is, you know, how we were talking about uh, the fact that you can make any kind of claim in an ebook or or anything really, and if you put in any kind of references there, then that will be good enough for people because most people will never check those things. Mm-hmm. And this whole debate on which exercise is best for what muscle group just um, made me realize that it's even true in the case of such like seemingly not fakeable things like what you feel in what muscle. So for example, Doug's book is full of things like, um, well, you can even tell that this, like, let's say this lat pulling is so great for the lats because like, you can even feel it like, like, like it's so great. Mm-hmm. And like the lats are a good example of a muscle group where, because like, it's not in front of the body. Like a lot of people have like, that's famously a muscle group where people have a hard time developing that mind muscle connection thing. Like. I could really sell you on the idea that you're feeling it better this way or this way, like your arms out wider in front. 
And like, I, I could convince you of both because like, you I, I like you can really make yourself believe that you're you're feeling it with either one of those mm-hmm. but then if you're listening to Kasim for example like he will break it down to you like why actually like this out wide position is more so upper back and a narrower grip is more so lats so if you can even like not fool people necessarily but like even saying something like this that you're feeling the muscle better there if even that is not an objective thing then man, like, like what does it tell us about how easy it is to, to sell fake sure. science basically? Yeah, for sure. It's really crazy. It's like what Kasim was saying about, I think it was on one of your two episodes where he was saying the reason that you think when you like crunch down to the side is because mm-hmm. your thoracic underneath is actually the area that's flexing. And so you, you mistake that as thinking that your lat is actually contracting, which is probably something that happens across all muscle groups with like different functions, especially things like pecs and lats that have those like fan shaped muscles with stuff underneath them. I yeah. could see that like faking people out constantly. Yeah. yeah I, uh, it's. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say yesterday I discovered an exercise. It's, I mean, it's not, it's more of a joke than anything, but I have uh, like, we were talking about like resistance curves with like um, lap pull downs. Like one of the whole issues that I had with like John Jaquisius's bands, it's like, okay, for all back exercises, this is going to be like the opposite of the resistance curve you need. Um, so I have like my, my stairs and like, there's like the side railing there. And I had this band and I was just trying to warm up for pull-ups so I put the band around it and I was pulling it towards me. Right. So you think like if it's a normal band, it's getting harder and harder and harder, but I had socks on my like wood floor. So as I pulled it, I actually, like I pulled the band, but then about halfway through, it was actually my body sliding towards it. So there, it was like, it was actually like this perfect resistance curve where as I got into like the weaker position, the band length was actually shortening. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and ultimately, like, it just felt like this, like, even tension throughout uh, because of the, you know, the minimal friction on the floor. So, obviously, this is not like a, a an <laughs> exercise that you could progressively load or anything. But I, as I'm doing, I'm like, oh, this is funny. Like, this is like the exact resistance curve I would need. Yeah, I don't know if you saw Kasim's post with the, like, it was like some kind of a, a cable Landline. row. And they yeah. are like the landmine in between, like, the bar just standing in the middle of that and, like... It it looked. I mean, it, it's pretty clever actually because it it is accommodating the resistance curve of of what movements it? nicely. So it was like the cable stack is on the right, he's okay. on the left, and then it's not just the cable that he's pulling, but like in between there, there was a landmine press basically attached, like a, like on a board the, just standing there, barbell. Yeah, yeah, lying yeah. on the cable. No, no, it was straight up. So as straight the up. As the the cable, as you would get to the short position, uh-huh. the landmine would come down and essentially make the short position easier for you. Oh, it would almost okay. be like reverse banding a pull down or something like okay. that. So kind but, of, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, very, very smart, very smart. But um, I just imagined that, like, what if I try to set this up in my gym? Because like my gym owner <laughs> is giving me shit even about like putting my barefoot like up on a bench during split squats because i'm gonna like make a mess or something and i I just imagine like him walking in and me doing that like just his reaction like the face (laughs) he would make before he would like kick me through the gym and throw me out but um but yeah just like like one thing uh, just on the whole dog versus casim thing um that i want to throw in just I'm, i'm curious on your takes on this actually like like, I think one thing that Doug is um, right about is that we certainly do have, like, I think a lot of us have a lot of emotional attachment to these more traditional exercises. 
And I think, I think there's definitely something to be said for the idea that even if, like, let's say there was an exercise which was not that difficult to do, I don't know, it required just some, I don't know, cable or maybe a machine, and that would replace one exercise like the squat or uh, an overhead press or something that is like done with barbells. It's very difficult, been done traditionally. Like even if the machine variant or whatever was more effective, I think a lot of us would just have a hard time, like, I guess, accepting that, especially if the movement looks a bit like funny or the the type of movement that these like functional trainer, like, I don't know, like these Bosu ball type people do in the gym. So I I think, I think a lot of it has, a lot of it has to do with, with, with just that. Um, But I don't know, like, what do, do you guys have that kind of attachment to certain lifts in the gym? I mean, I definitely have the attachment in terms of strength, like of an exercise like this. I was the whole thing with like when I was working with Steve or now that I am working with Steve is it's that I have this attachment that I need to be using a certain weight. Um, but as far as an attachment personally to like feeling like this exercise is going to inherently be necessary. I don't think so as much, maybe like when I was younger, you know, you talk about like the, you know, standard big lifts, but At this point, I I think it's fairly well accepted that a wide variety of lifts can lead to pretty ideal hypertrophy. um, That is not the most important thing. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's easy to be neurotic with like dumbbells and barbell movements that you know what you're supposed to use on. So, and maybe we'll just use like a lateral raise as an example. I mean, at points in my life, I've been able to do 35, 40 pound lateral raises with decent form. I don't know if it's like, like perfect form. Like there might've been like a little body English in there. Right. And so then when I incorporate a dumbbell lateral raise now, and I have this new kind of focus on, on movement quality, et cetera, 35 or 40 pounds is way too heavy for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll go be like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll use 25 pounds. It's all good. And then the reps will be perfect. And the next week I'll be like, okay, cool. Now I'll try 30 pounds. You know, I'm going to, I want to work my way back up to like 35 to 40 for some reason, as if like that matters. Like if I don't do 35 or 40 pounds, I'm somehow I'm going to lose muscle or not have as much muscle as I did previously. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with like an overhead press, um, or any other movement. If you have an association with the number, then it's really easy to think that you need to hit those numbers or that means you lost muscle. Uh, at least that's the way I I would think about it. So since I've got my functional trainer, like two weeks ago, I've exchanged out like 70% of my free weight movements that I was doing uh, bilaterally because I didn't have a dual cable stack before. And I've just changed them all out for cables. And now I have no idea what the correlation is. Like I'm just doing like cable lateral raises and, you know, this is like a piece of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just basically a, um, it has a cable on either side with, a an arm that runs up and down so you can mm-hmm. change the height of it. And then mine happens to also have like a high pulley and a low pulley. So I can do like pull downs mm-hmm. cool. and rows and stuff like that. But, um, but I just got that and changed out a lot of my movements and now I have no association with a number. So like I'm doing lateral raises and it says there's 80 pounds on there, but it's a four to one, uh, right. calibration. So it's really 20 pounds, but like, to me, that's nothing. It's just, I know that I'm feeling tension on my lateral delts as I do yeah. the movement. Um, so I think things like that can be helpful, but like to your point, man, I just went through a seven week strength phase where I was back squatting and deadlifting and stuff like this. And I haven't done those movements since 2016 mm. and it's 
it was really hard for me. I got myself into a fatigue hole really quickly and I, mm. I, I wish I could do it over and be a little, uh, have a little bit more trepidation as I'm kind of working my way through. Um, because I, I reached a fatigue point at like week four and then the last three weeks I've just been treading water. So, and that's all because of that association that I had to those lifts and those numbers. How did your lifts compare at the end of that block compared to 2016 at the four week point, uh, where before the fatigue caught up with me really bad. I, uh, back squatted a 395 single at like an RPE six. And, um, back in 2016, I did 405 for three, but it was like an RPE 12. Like right. literally I got stuck in the middle of the rep on the final rep. So I think like a 395 at RP six, eh, they're pretty close. And then the deadlift, I, I, the fatigue from the deadlift was, was massive, but I pulled a 460 single at probably an RPE six. It was mm. the fastest that 460 ever moved for me. Um, and then the fatigue hit me and I never got to try to match what would have been my old PR of 519. Okay. Nice. I feel like it's interesting to me when people talk about their strength, like, like you were saying, I think Brian, about how, like, you know, you were gone from those movements for so long um, are you doing other things? And for me, I feel like when it comes to like the big lifts, I guess it's a little hard to tell because I've just, I never stopped doing them. So it's a little bit hard to make the comparison, but now that I have, um, like for instance, if I were to go like pull a deadlift right now, I feel like I would be nowhere near, like even with a couple of weeks, I just feel like it would take me so long. Kind of like, like with Brad Loomis talking about how, like, he's not that strong. He's just really good at these exercises. I think for me, like I, I had a decent strength, especially for my weight for deadlift squat was like, meh, um, bench was pretty good, but I do feel like a lot of that was me just like, like getting used to it. And I think that's a lot of it. Cause like you clearly have more muscle mass than me, Brian, but we've talked about how our peak strengths are, are so similar. And if I were to guess, I would think yours is more like a higher percentage of that strength in your case is from the actual you know, production of muscle force and my would maybe be a little bit more neurological if I had to guess. I would agree with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, did you guys find that these, I mean, I know you've adapted some of what Kasim has said, Brian, but do you guys find that these recent discussions have actually changed how you're implementing anything? I mean, Abel, you're going to have a console with them. So, so uh, that almost likely will, I'd say for me, yeah. I've certainly changed exercises recently, but that's more because of working with Steve than it is any of the, the biomechanic discussions. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely have changed the way I've trained like gradually over the last year and change. Um, I've had like some side discussions with Cassim on DM about, you know, movements that I'm doing and things like that too. Um, so an example would be like, you know, Cassim is super against trapping the scapula and lying down during any movements, whether that be like, you know, lying upright rows or lying lateral raises or any of those things where, where you're prone, um, laying on your back. So supine, um, he prefers to let the scapula kind of move freely in those movements. Lying so upright had, rows that you mean like with a cable. Yeah. Yeah. So you're lying on your back in a supine position, but okay. you're pulling from a low cable like this. Okay. That used to be one of my favorite movements, you know, a year ago. And then throughout a series of conversations with Cassim about that, um, I've kind of moved away from it. Uh, it, <laughs> it. I also would say that just in the last two weeks, as I'm preparing to go to the N1 practical um, next week, you have to do two modules from the biomechanics um, 
certification, I guess it is on their site or whatever. I don't know if it's a certification is the right word, but um, basically it's like 114 modules and you have to do the first two, uh, like 19 of the 114. So oh, it nice. talks a lot about like functional anatomy and some of the basic biomechanics stuff. And he has this little skeleton structure, as you guys have seen on your podcast and stuff where he's specifically talking about the shoulder joint and, um, and he shows the little ball piece inside of the shoulder joint and how, you know, when, when your elbows are out like this, whether you're pressing or pulling, like you get to a point where you just can't do anymore because that ball is pushing up against the, the top of the scapula. And then as the arm kind of tucks down, like in those presses, it moves freely. Um, and then similarly, he was talking about like lateral raises and how, you know, when you guys have heard him talk about how you lateral raise in the scapular plane, which would be like, you know, in half in front, half to the side. Um, and he yep. shows on the, the skeleton how, you know, if you go straight out to the side, you get about to about right here, just below parallel. And then any additional elevation is the trap elevating because that ball pushes up against the scapula and you can't actually get higher with just the lateral delt. But then it shows how, like, if you move into that scapular plane and the ball can actually move freely and now you can get all the way up to here without the, the jamming into the scapula piece. And like, you can actually do those movements. And when you, when you think about it that way, after you see him explain it and you're doing your lateral raises and you get to here and then you're like, oh yeah. And then this comes up like that. You can kind of feel that the trap engages, not that the trap engaging is wrong because that does help, uh, with lateral raise, uh, ad abduction, uh, where was sorry, shoulder abduction. Uh, but, but either way, um, a lot of those things I've implemented and feel, uh, that they are helping. So, mm. so that would be my initial statement on that. And then I have, uh, I'll, I'll let you guys talk and then I have something else as well. Okay. Um, do you want to say something, Abel? Yeah. So I, I was thinking while Brian was speaking and um, honestly, not, not, not so much yet. Um, usually I'm, I'm looking to improve more so on, on the programming side, like um, more effective ways of breaking through strength plateaus and keeping progression more linear and playing around with volume and, and things like that. But, um, but as you said, I'm, I'm going to have that consultation with him and um, hopefully I will come across or come go away with something new that I can implement and I will be more than happy to. And I'm even prepared to, like, if certain things that Kasim was saying on my podcast are correct, then man, I, I will have to write a couple of emails to past clients and apologize to them. Like, I was wrong here. Uh, all this thing that I, I rented you or not, I rented you, but you know, like I told you that it's this way. Um, um, I'm, I'm wrong. So, mm -hmm. Hey, from, from now on, I advise that you do things, uh, this other way. So we'll see. Yeah. I, I mean, I, so I'm definitely interested to learn more about it. I, I do question, like, I, I want to see people and, and it's so hard to know this stuff. Like I would once say I'd like to see is 12 weeks of not like we've seen like the partial range of motion versus the full range of motion. I want to see a full range of motion, let's say cheat curl compared to like a strip curl or a lateral with momentum compared to like an ideal lateral, but still both full range of motion and both to failure, right? Which is a huge aspect because, you know, um, I've got a podcast with uh, Jeffrey Verdi Schofield coming out today. We talk about, well, yeah, obviously if you use a, if you use a cheat form with the same weight, obviously it's going to be easier because you're cheating, but the reality is cheating allows you to use more weight. Mm -hmm. 
So in that case, you know, which one is going to cause more muscle growth? I don't believe there's any studies that are discussing that um, or testing that. So I'd like to see that that's one aspect of it is like, is there almost too much emphasis on like this ideal form sometimes? Uh, and I, I understand the argument, oh, you, you want to make sure like muscle itself is really getting all the tension. But sometimes I also think like, okay, so maybe if you don't have the exact right positioning, the tension is on different muscles, but like some muscle is doing the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously if you're doing like tons of momentum, no, but like some muscle is moving it. And so some muscles are hitting failure. Now this could be where you really try to emphasize if you were to do one exercise, that might be a problem. If you were to only squat and you have a, a squat that really emphasizes maybe your lower back and your glutes, then that's problematic for your quads, right? So even though you are going to grow, it's going to be maybe where you don't need it as much. Um, but I, but I wonder sometimes when it's like, okay, if we're talking three or four different exercises for let's say our shoulders and, and our lateral delts, are we not going to get eventually like the, the maximum muscle hypertrophy possible in that situation? If you're doing maybe a not perfectly ideal, but you're doing a side lateral and you're doing an upright row and you're doing shoulder press and you're doing them all with sufficient volume with progressive overload, is this tweak of 20 degrees of my arm out, is it going to change anything? I, I don't know. Stimulus fatigue ratio over time, like for each movement, right? So, so if you're doing movements that are slightly less efficient for the area that you're training, then you're potentially putting additional stress on your joint structures. Uh, you're doing extra volume that potentially you don't need to do. Like you could get more out of less if you were being a little bit more targeted. Um, those would be my thoughts initially on that. And then I also think that what if using momentum was just a tool you could use to change the resistance curve. So if you're at a lateral raise and you know that you're doing it strict and the top of the motion is the hardest point, it's a short overloaded movement, right? So what if now we start using momentum and now the dumbbell almost like floats at the top because you've gotten through that hard part, you've gotten it going and it almost mm -hmm. turns into like a lengthened or mid-range overload movement. So what if you even went to like failure short range and then you started using a little momentum and got a little of that length and mid-range in there or you just look at them as two separate movements. Well, I definitely agree on like the, the wear and tear on the body and the joints. I mean, so this is more an argument like just for muscle growth, but I yeah. agree. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's much benefit to using the momentum. And I used to do cheat curls at the end of my workouts after I've already done like multiple sets of back and I would do 135 pound curls, but they were not strict curls. I mean, I was like definitely using quite a momentum. And my arms were probably a little smaller than they are now, maybe about the same where I don't do, I mean, I literally will use half of that weight. Um, but the momentum thing and like changing the resistance curve, I agree. And, and that's one of the things that I've talked with Steve about recently is like, you know, because I've been trying to reset my form to be like this, like ideal, just pristine form. It's hard to gauge when you're really hitting failure. Um, and this is something I'm going to make a whole video about at some point, but when you're used to doing things all out and then you're holding back you know in your head i could do way more than this like i could get another three reps but if i if i try to keep my this exact form i can't and i'm used to things feeling a lot harder mm -hmm. like oh, systemically because i'm putting more oomph into it and everything so it's actually genuinely getting to about failure but it doesn't feel like the failure i'm used to which is actually harder in my opinion so let me just say also, I just, you know, I don't want people when they hear me to think that I'm trying to say, 
well, because April and I were talking about how like nothing matters. Like there was another paper that came out with in mass and it was like uh, periodization didn't matter for strength or hypertrophy. And I said, let's just add this. We just had a <laughs> folder of like nothing matters. And just like every, like all every slide we come out and keep in mind, there's a huge bias towards publishing papers that show significant results, right? I mean, the, yeah. the vast majority of things do not show much of a significant result. So we're getting the ones that are more likely to be significant. And even then it's like, well, this didn't really matter. This didn't really matter. So I do actually kind of feel like a ton of this doesn't matter, but I also don't want to yeah. come across as saying nothing matters. Mm-hmm. I, I just also don't want to, it's very easy to latch onto something and, and go down the route and become the, the Doug Brignoli type or this, where it's like, you know, this is so significant and it's going to make these big differences. And I just never want people to lose sight of the big picture that like, you know, uh, I, I think um, Ben, the barman, Steve Shaw, he, he had a funny post and he was like, you know, teacup laterals are not your answer. You know, like, you know, you, you're just doing this small modification is not going to be this game changer to your physique. And so these little nuances are fun to talk about. I just don't want people to lose the big picture. Yeah, it's. Um, I actually wanted to do a video on this, um, where I, I don't know, like I would call it something like optimization versus nihilism, or, or something like that. But mm. it would be a pretty lame title. But basically, it would be. But you and I, Dave, talked about this uh, on the last um, podcast that we did on my channel. Where, so in isolation, like any of these small modifications are, are probably not going to do much. Like basically, as long as you're getting the the big rocks down like progressive overload, high enough intensity of effort, like these things, then you're, you're going to get most of your results. And, and all of these little tweaks are just not going to do much. But like, it, like over time, they could be stacking up to something meaningful. And I think, so if I'm looking at someone like Steve Hall or AJ Morris, and, and I, I can see how dedicated they are and how, just how like really they're giving giving their all to this off season that they will have for, I don't know, like three years. And really every single day, like the multiple training sessions, the intra workout carbs and whatever. And like, I, I myself would be with most of those things. I, I would be just thinking no way, like, like, come on, like, it, it's just not worth it. It's not going to achieve anything meaningful for me to, to, to be worth it to do any of those. But like, if like, individually those are not going to do anything but like the cumulative effect over time like that could actually make the difference between him putting on i don't know i don't know three pounds of muscle in that off season or four (laughs) and a half which like over four years i mean that's that's nothing but like but but maybe that's what it actually took like if you're not using anabolics like you're really only looking for these like tiny little edges Mm -hmm. so and I think if you're well, having if that it, mindset, if it really did do that much, then I'd say all for it. You know, it's kind of like that question that you and I got asked on, um, Ham- I think, was it Hammer Away Fitness? Uh, yeah, Mike Murray, um, yeah. Muscle Memoirs, yeah. And, it, you know, I was almost surprised by the question, but, you know, just because he didn't really know my background as much, I think. But it was like, you know, if you if you could do all these things and it would put on three or four pounds of muscle, like, would that be worth it to you? And I was like, of course that would be worth yeah, it. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> but, but even to the level you're talking about, even if it was two pounds of muscle over a three year off season, that would also, for me would also be worth it. I think for, for most people probably wouldn't be. Um, and, and unfortunately I don't think we can never, you know, we're never going to be able to run that study, you know, but yeah. uh, it, it could, you know, I, I could see it with like the right tweaks. And if you had like the ideal, 
um, stimulus to fatigue ratio so that you, you know, every exact amount of stimulus you need is there, but no more. And so you're not too fatigued and that allows you to get a little bit in theory, it, it could. Um, and if you're a competitor like Steve, where this is really your whole life, like I'm not in any way saying not to do it. I just, I, it's hard to know if it's really doing anything. And that's where there's all this speculation among different camps and, and why you, you still see after all this time, some pretty significant differences in preferences. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's, it's just like, I only brought that up because like, it, it kind of like what you mentioned about you, like you would really like to see a study where I don't know, 12 weeks, one is using cheat curls. The other one is using, I don't know, some really strict cable curl, mm-hmm. like in 12 weeks, the fact that we're not picking up any difference, it doesn't mean that in three years, we wouldn't pick up a difference, which yeah. of course, then you can create this like non-falsifiable argument that like, right. well, like it's, so it, it's very tricky because it's just so slow and so hard to measure. Yeah, so. for sure. And there's so much individual variance in what like type of training actually works for individual people. Um, like Greg Knuckles said, I think on a podcast last year, he's something like along the lines of, you know, I've met way too many people that swear that when they went from low volume to high volume, that it like yeah. changed their life and then vice versa, the same thing. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I don't think these people are lying. Like they legitimately found what worked for them. And like, for some people it's high, some it's low, somewhere, some it's right in the middle. Like you got to find what works for you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. So it, it's two things. So there's like, it's like, okay, you could just be lying, right? And then there's people who are not lying, and but they really believe it. And because it actually happened. And then there is, well, they're not lying, because they believe it, but it actually it didn't actually happen. And like, you see this a lot, like, for example, um, DC training, people know I'm a fan of Dante and, and DC training. But a big part of it, some people will think it's like, oh man, like it, like this routine is so great. And it's like, well, you also have to consider that you might've been doing this whole bro system and DC also emphasizes really high protein and keeping your carbs reasonable and sleep and, you know, all these other things that it's like, it could have just been a bunch of things that you weren't doing that now you're focusing on, right? Like how many people genuinely really lost weight when they did this fad diet and they're not lying, but they're the reason behind it is so different than what they mm-hmm. thought. So it's hard for me to take any anecdote seriously, especially if it doesn't comport with the literature that shows like, well, I, I switched to this and it was like this fantastic result. Um, it's really, really hard to parse out among just like gen pop people who don't understand uh, the, you know, like the scientific method. And then even among people who do, it's still very hard to parse out. Yeah. And, and it's also like we are looking at long timelines even then. So like how many people are really going to be very systematic about everything, only changing one thing at a time. Right. So like I, I was talking about this with um, this friend of mine, Thomas Compidel. He was on my channel before. And uh, I asked him, like, what do you find? Like how much utility or how much need is there for a lot of arm isolation work? Like, do you find that from chin-ups and things like that, people are getting enough bicep stimulus, for example? And he was like, well, it's individual. Like some people like really need a lot of volume to have their biceps grow, I find. And then I'm like, but the, how do you pick that up? Like, cause how long are you working with them? Cause I mean, right. really like yeah, yeah. in a month, if you put up, put on like a quarter of an inch on your biceps in a month. Like, I think we can all agree that would be amazing for, for most people. So like, if it was how, really, how do you, yeah. if it wasn't yeah. just like you gaining a bunch of weight. Yeah. If you actually yeah. have muscle. Yeah, exactly. So like, how are you going to pick that up? I, I, so it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And then like sometimes, sometimes people ask me, 
Like, uh, so like, what was the difference for you? So like, I don't know, going from, I don't know, 75 kilos at, I don't know, 10 ish percent body fat to over 80. And like, I, I can throw out things which I think were the game changers, but like, it's been a very long time period. So like, mm-hmm. and, and I haven't been doing the exact same stuff. So I can really make like kind of guess and I can make educated guesses. And then I'm more systematic than most people. So yeah. Anyway, it's difficult. <laughs> Scott Stevenson asked me one time, I, I, like when I had not first met him, but maybe like a year in, and he said, well, like, what have you found works best for you? And I'm like, I don't know. I've been doing this. Like at this time, it was like 12 years in. I'm like, stuff, I, it, it's just kind of been this general thing. And whatever routine I was doing, I was still focused. Now, again, the, keep in mind, I was never doing any like total nonsense routines, right? But it was like, I just kind of generally grew over the years, progressive overload. Like it's very... It was very hard for me to say because I like I think some people they'll do a routine and they're not eating properly. And so like they're like, oh, this routine made me feel this way or I gain more strength on it. But if you're just eating in a surplus over time and you're following those principles and you have reasonable volume, I, I personally think it's gonna be hard to parse out. Um, but you're right, Brian. Like there there are some people who maybe I'm just not one of them. Maybe I just I've never had a strong enough response to one thing. But you definitely do find some people who say like, wow, I did this and it was such a game changer. And I, I, I sometimes wonder, and I'm not saying you shouldn't look at like what does and doesn't work for like your own history. Like that's like I sent a questionnaire to clients and, and that's one of the questions. But um, I just wonder if, if other factors played in there and it was more of that time period yeah. than it was that routine. No, for sure. I, I agree too. Um, and a perfect example of that is like people ask me the same question, like what was the most effective training you ever did, et cetera. And the answer always for me is the two or three years I did max OT. But what that doesn't say is that that also coordinated with me going through like the very heart of puberty. Like I was literally like turning into a man between like freshman and sophomore year of college. And I happened to be doing max OT at that time. So um, it's difficult to say. There was a routine called big beyond belief BBB on a well, it wasn't from T Nation, but if you search on T Nation forums, there was a guy, Modoc, and this guy was a tank. And this was like when I was like in early high school. So I didn't know that he was like very clearly enhanced. And he was talking about these insane gains he got. And it was like ridiculous. And he was in college at the time or like reporting on when he was in college. And I was actually in college at the time. And this was still when I just thought like, oh, wow, this routine is going to, and I mean, I'm talking like, hundred pounds on his bench press for reps, like just ridiculousness. Um, obviously I didn't get anything like that, but I, I grew, but I grew kind of just like everything else, you know? Um, I did want to ask you actually, Brian, I I know, um, Aaron couldn't join us today, but I was looking at when we were talking about that picture of you guys from CrossFit and you guys were saying how, um, I think you said that your traps and back, both of you guys noticed are not as developed as then just because you had so much volume with certain lifts. Um, so one, maybe just dive into that a little bit. And then two, I think it'd be interesting to dive into, um, the DEXA scans that he took and and I'm sure Mm -hmm. whenever he comes on, he can elaborate, but it kind of goes back into what we were talking about where, yes, he was at a higher body fat percentage, but he, you know, we, we talked about, oh, all the the growth that you guys have had or the progress I said, we, um, I should say that you guys have had, but ultimately his DEXA from years ago doing CrossFit had more lean body mass than now. Right. Well, he was 227 pounds or something in that DEXA. I think that he, yeah, that he yeah for sure. So yeah, it's going to show a lot more than 192 pounds. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Although I did, I know when we were talking to him, he, it was like, you could pretty much gain 
pure fat yes. and get to his like ideal goal right now. Right. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a lot. So maybe just elaborate on some of that. Yeah. Yeah. So Aaron had stated that his goal, like in life had been to be 200 pounds and 10% body fat. And we looked at his DEXA and I think it was, he was 195 or 96 now, and he was 8.2% body mm-hmm. fat or something. So you're like, Oh, you could just gain four pounds of fat and you'd be there, you know? Yeah. Um, really. like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. You know? Um, I mean, in 200 pounds, 10% body fat, like Aaron was just over last night. Uh, he had dinner at my place cause they're here in town for the end. Oh one practical and he's looking massive man like they've they've plastered him all over the the casms page uh he's, as like a highlight like, my boy. Height, like six feet six one five eleven six foot i would say six yeah between five eleven a little six shorter feet. okay yeah now he he definitely looks like because even the picture of you guys next to each other so you must be what five nine five ten um yeah pro- between those two yeah okay um yeah i mean you, you obviously look big but like just as he's a big person you know he's yeah, just like a yeah. meaty dude yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, regarding the question about the, the back and the traps, those are definitely the two areas that we noticed. And, um, it's because so much of CrossFit involves pulling things off the ground and then jumping and shrugging with them. So, you know, we constantly were doing Olympic lifting, Olympic lifting is a skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would both do it as a skill or strength piece for neural adaptations. And then it would also be done under, you know, metabolic fatigue, um, uh, even creatine phosphate system fatigue, like high, like high weight for low reps, but under metabolic uh, circumstances. So, you know, you're doing 30 power snatches for time at 135. That was like a really common workout in CrossFit. And you literally try to do that thing in like under three minutes. So you're just ripping 135 off the ground and like your form isn't perfect. You're basically doing like a, a round, almost not rounded back, but your back's in slight flexion as you kind of just activate your glutes and hamstrings and pop your hips and pull overhead. So you're doing so many, so many reps of that. Plus you're deadlifting, um, like conventional deadlifts. We really didn't do much RDLs except as accessory work to Olympic lifting. It would be like snatch grip RDLs to work on positioning and stuff like that. But, uh, lots of conventional deadlifts, uh, again, for strength work, as well as under metabolic fatigue, um, where form would tend to break down and the erectors would, um, receive a lot of fatigue, I think is the right way to say that. Like you could say stimulus, but I think fatigue yeah. is, is really the right answer. Um, and so we were our upper bodies were, were massive because we were overcompensating using them. Uh, and our hamstrings and glutes were pretty good too, but our quads were always compromised. I think we talked about this the last time we were on because essentially since we started CrossFit, you know, eight years prior to that, all we did was squat and deadlift and there was no like leg extension. There Mm -hmm. was no focus, even on when you're doing lunges, you're not trying to use your quad and get knee flexion. You're just trying to stand up as quickly as you can. So of course you're going to use your glutes and hip flexion and stuff like that. So, um, I think the practice of the movements and then the exercise selection in CrossFit, uh, lend themselves much more to developing the erectors and the traps. I think it's interesting though, that you feel like, because, you know, obviously we know that it's a lot easier to maintain muscle than it is to gain it. And despite that, you still feel like with continuing to work out all this time, you've still lost mass. Yeah. I don't think it's a ton though. Um, I used to have these like this, uh, shark fin style erectors where Mm. I would go like set up for a deadlift and it would look like my back was rounded at the bottom just because my erectors were so they're protruding so far. And, and I don't really have that anymore, but part of me also wonders how much of that was inflammation. Cause my like low back was always sore and I was always like, you know, 
hobbling or like bending down and trying to grab my toothbrush. And like, like I was constantly in pain. And as soon as the pain would subside, it would be time to deadlift again. So Mm -hmm. like, I don't know that I ever let my body optimize where it should be. And who knows how much of that was inflammation versus actual muscle tissue. I have one more comment on it, but I don't know if you want to jump in with anything, Abel. Um, I was actually just trying to look up uh, pictures of Brian's back, but <laughs> damn it. But, but actually you have, um, you have that thing, which I so badly want for myself, but I don't think I will ever have it. So like, I'm looking at this picture oh, the here, low back. that thing, like, so I don't know if that's like the lower lats, like meeting the erectors. Yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah. That's what I'm seeing there. But yeah. But that's like, um, it, it looks like a butt cheek on someone's lower back, basically. But, but I, think it's, I think it's just um, like muscle insertion, honestly. Like that's yeah. just how your lats attach and that's what's giving you that great shape. Yeah, they attach much lower, I think, than a lot of people. So it, lo- it makes it look like a little bit wider in that whole structure. I think yeah. uh, one interesting thing, though, about the CrossFit is that, and this, you know, this certainly does not take away from the arguments we made about stimulus to fatigue ratio and, and certainly like joint integrity and all of that. But here we are, you know, saying, well, form might not have been the best explosive, like these like dynamic movements of exercises that, you know, maybe wouldn't be ideal hypertrophy movements, certainly not what like CASM would prescribe. And yet you're talking how this was like the biggest your traps and back ever got simply from volume. Um, and, and that, mm. you know, goes back to the whole point of like, you know, I think if you're doing sufficient volume and you're working your ass off, I, I don't, I think there's better ways. And, and Doug even makes this point. He's like, you know, you can get to this place and, but why go like the hard route? You know, if you can go a, a less injurious route and get there a little faster and that, and I, I agree with that from a longevity standpoint, I probably wouldn't say, do tons of volume and ballistic movements and everything. But if we're just focusing on the muscle growth, this is why I have a hard time with the claim of it's going to get you better results. It's maybe going to get you there faster. It's maybe going to get you there less injured. I don't know if I believe these things are going to get better muscular growth over time. Like one, one thing that, um, so he, when, when he said that, uh, like the first, first thing I, I had an issue with, or just like started thinking about over time is, um, the problem is that anecdotally, that's just not what I see that, um, people are like, they like having to do tons and tons more volume to make up for not so great exercise selection because like true muscular, like before afters and transformations, like those are very hard to find online that are natural, Mm -hmm. like fat loss ones. Yeah. You can find a ton, but like someone who is like naturally actually went from like not very muscular to like impressively muscular, like very hard to find. But like the very few camps who somewhat regularly had those types of transformations, like those are the Martin Burkan type, like very minimalistic training. Like, like honestly, those training camps are one of the most successful ones in terms of like consistently producing good transformations with people and pretty legitimate testimonials. And they are minimalistic and simplistic with their exercise selection, I would say to a fault. Like it's, it's, it's like the stereotypical, like just do squat bench and deadlift bro and like don't overcomplicate it. And like they, they produce some really impressively jacked physiques. Mm-hmm. And so that's honestly just not what I see that people, like if they only did these like biomechanically very optimal movements, then they could do much less, but because they don't do them and they do the bench squat and whatever, they just have to do tons and tons of sets. So 
honestly, like I always like, like that's why I always end up gravitating back towards uh, like a lower volume, higher effort approach because like, it, it just seems like that's what produces results in the most kind of foolproof way. Like with that, I at least know that it's not going to be the case that the person is not going to get anywhere. Um, and, and I mean, Dave, probably, I don't know, like Brian, maybe you have a slightly different clientele that you're working with, but, um, I mean, Dave, I'm sure you come across a lot of these people who have these like very pretty exercises that they have a, a ton of in their program and they are very, very analytical and like, you know, what's the common denominator with them oftentimes like <laughs> that they, you know, like they have been spinning their wheels for a long time. And then you put them on like a, a much more simplistic setup high, like close failure proximity, lower volume, and they start making some steady gains, not going to be like a massive, massive game changer with their physique, but they are going to go get somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, tricky one. It's yeah, it's for sure tough. I mean, people ask me all the time, like the most common question I get is like, or one of them is, you know, when should we even start incorporating like these types of movements in? Right. And my answer is like, probably not until you've gotten pretty big and pretty strong. Like, like I would never take somebody who hadn't kind of at least gotten to 95% of their potential with the compound movements before I'm starting to have them do like a iliac lat pull down or like, mm. you know, a one arm cross cable, uh, thing just to, to lengthen the rear delt or like anything like that. Right. Like I don't care about any of that stuff because there's seven basic movements in my mind and they're the seven basic movements that got me through the first 10 years of my training, which is probably where I got most of my results. Right. And then there's just been some added benefit through some of these isolations as I've added them in out of necessity almost like, Oh, I've never really trained my rec fem. So maybe yeah. in the last three or four years, I should start doing that. You know? Well, that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I think that's what I mean earlier about like, don't get you know lost as far as like the big picture. Cause I don't know if, if maybe, maybe Cassim, I, I doubt Cassim would agree with that. I doubt Cassim no, would say, wouldn't. yeah, like do the first, you know, 95% like this. Um, yeah. But I, I, I do agree with you on that. And, and if, if for no other reason that like the other stuff just isn't, I just don't think it's necessary. I think when you get to like a Steve Hall level where it's like, man, if, if I can get a little bit more on my lateral delts to mm -hmm. pop because I've got a block your waist and that's going to help me on like, then I, yeah, I totally can see it. Um, but I, I don't think for the average person. So I, it's, it's a good point you just made. I did a cool experiment on my story yesterday where I did the one arm, uh, iliac lat pull down, you know, prone on the bench. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I showed how, as the reps went on, the blood was accumulating in the lower lat area. And it was so cool to be able to see by like rep seven or eight, whatever, when I hit failure, that all of the blood was in the lower lat region. And there was none in the upper back rear delt area like because of the way the movement was being, it getting, yeah, it should still be on my story for another like two hours if you want to check it out. Okay. But um, you can visually see the blood pooling in the lower lat and not in the upper back. And then I showed an, an, a row, like an upper back row where I pull low to high and the elbows come out and you can see all of the tension and blood pooling in the upper back. Um, so it, it's kind of cool. Your to be... back is getting, that's crazy. Yeah. Are you looking? Yeah. It's wild, yeah. right? It was one of the coolest things that, that I've done recently on, on Instagram and like a, a lot of people commented and were like, wow, this is wild. Like, because you can actually see mm. where the tension is going as you're doing the movement. Um, and I don't even know, like a year ago, if I would have done that movement that I would have been able to get that same effect that I was getting there. Dude, I'm so pale. I bet you could really see this on me. <laughs> you should try it, dude. It's pretty <laughs> rad. It's cool.
How much do you weigh now? That's pretty amazing. Uh, I weighed 191 this morning. Okay. Um, By the way, Brian, let let me ask you this. Um, Before I have my consult with Kasim, like uh, you mentioned the scapular movement and how you like shouldn't lock it down, that that's one of his things. Mm -hmm. Like, does he, because I know he has a long video on on YouTube on scapular movement during uh, bench pressing, I think Mm -hmm. as well. Like, is he... Is he of the opinion that you should retract uh, on on the bench press, or but no, how so does the, that work? Can, yeah, the you. scapula needs to move freely, so you're not going to pin the scapula down. But what happens as the arms come back, the scapula naturally will retract, and then as you push forward, the the scapula will naturally protract a little bit. So so you're allowing the scapula to move with you versus trying to lock it down and then press within that lockdown position. I think honestly, most people that train probably do this right without having to think about it. And I think it's primarily within the powerlifting community that people really try to lock, lock the scapula down like that. Um, because like the, so the thing with me is I saw this being said by Eugene Theo, mm-hmm. Theo, not Theo, right? Um, anyway, Theo, yeah. yeah. So I saw that like, I don't know, like a year ago or two years ago. And I even asked him like, um, like, like, can you explain how that works? Cause I, then I even tried it in the gym. Like, okay, I'm going to be open-minded to this, but like my shoulder blades are like literally like protruding that way. Like they're like standing out, mm-hmm. like for most people, like for everybody. So if I lie down with, I don't know, like a hundred kilos in my hands, that is just going to like freaking like stab into the bench. So I like, how are they going to move freely and how are they not going to hurt? Like, cause they well, did, you, definitely did hurt. Like to, 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 what are you saying to retract your scapula into the bench? I mean, at least like a, I mean, if I'm not doing it, if I'm not retracting at all, just lying down mm-hmm. with my scapula moving freely. Flat. Yeah. So, so then, you lie down, start from a top position with your scapula, you know, free, not like jabbed back into the bench, right? And then as the arms come back, what's essentially happening is the scapula is going to raise your body up. So, so if this is why you see like Kasim, if you've ever seen him bench press and Nunez does the same thing, um, is that as the, as the arms come back, the head comes up slightly. So the, the head lifts off the bench because the scapula retracting is lifting the head up. Did you feel that when you just tried that, um, a little bit? Um, yeah. So, so as this comes back, the head almost has to come up off the bench because the bulk of the scapula isn't allowing the head to lay flat anymore. Ooh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about the head, but maybe the okay. couch is not good for this, but I could definitely feel like, I know like as the bar comes back, the scapula are, are going back as well. Yeah. It's just, I'm, I, I think like, isn't that restricted to relatively light weights though? If, if you're going to do that. I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think that when you start from that top position and your arms are extended, you're not in scapular retraction, right? Um, so like, I think if I'm just lying down and I'm not retracting my scapula, then I, I think, I mean, I haven't tried it in a long time, but I, I think it actually hurt my scapula. Cause like they were like kind of standing out. So as I lay down on the bench and with that heavy weight pressing me down, it was like, ah, oh, what the hell? So you're saying so the retraction it, protects you a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah. It actually just makes it comfortable, at least a little bit, like not necessarily like the hardcore. Yeah, like- yeah, yeah. That's what I would say is probably happening in reality. Like like you say that they're, that you're not retracting, but you have to create some sort of like padding back there. So you're not doing like a hard powerlifting retract, but I also don't know yeah. that you're like fully protracted where like your shoulder blades are able to just like, like you yeah. were saying. Yeah, Cassim say not to retract at all. I don't know the nuance of that, so I don't want to misspeak, uh, mm-hmm. but I know that the scapula should move freely, meaning that it should move from within ranges of retraction to protraction, depending on where you are within the movement. Okay. So I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to talk about with the biomechanics stuff. I know, Brian, you've been wanting a, a Steve update for me, so I can dive into that if you want or whatever yeah. we want. To go yeah, I want to talk about that. And then anything, if you if you have any thoughts, like the the stuff on the partials in the the uh, length and position of short range overload movements, you know, has been something that we've kind of been talking about a little bit on. Uh, on yeah. Jeff was telling that. me that you guys were discussing it. And and yeah. on that note, at some point we're going to have to do, I don't know if we're going <laughs> to be able to coordinate a round table. It's going to be so many, but you, Aaron, me, Abel, Jeff, Steve, Maybe get Brandon to cruise. Nice. At least six. There's probably some other people. <laughs> no one's gonna, it's gonna be like a four-hour episode, and everyone's gonna get like <laughs> yeah. in. So well, a, a lot camp. of us are in. I don't know, Abel, if you ever make it to the U.S., but I mean, definitely, um, Aaron. Where is Aaron based? He's nomadic. Uh, he moves every six he months. Goes all over. But, okay. but he's in Scottsdale right now. Okay. Yeah, and get Jeff over from China. He can escape, but we'll see. So, uh, so with Steve. Um, so we just, this is the end of my deload. So I have one deload workout today and then, uh, you know, we've got the second meso. So, um, certainly like when it's all said and done, I'll make like a comprehensive video. I don't know if maybe I'll have Steve on again and we'll discuss everything, but, um, it's hard to say like too much about, you know, cause some people have asked like, you know, are you seeing differences? And it's like, well, it's been five weeks, you know, there's not going to be huge changes. So, you know, we started at a, I guess it would be a higher RIR, each week we added, and a lot of it was just like, I sent him a lot of form videos and just kind of getting, cause at first I think my form was almost too pristine. Like where I was like, really just trying to be like exactly what I thought he would want, where I'm like, I mean, there's just almost like no explosiveness. I'm just like, everything's slow and controlled. So he's even said like, you know, be more explosive on like the leg curl and this and that some of these things. And that's, I've mentioned in a podcast where it's like, I could get so many more reps just with that explosiveness and it's and some of the exercises where i have a hard time gauging that would be like a lateral raise where it's like okay if i keep my body completely still versus if i just use the littlest bit of oomph i mean double the reps you know like it's it's so uh and so it's more just trying to get that down where all right i'm really trying to keep that constant but not do it to the point where it's like, you know, Abel, you and I have discussed about how some people like their form is so, I don't even want to call it ideal, but they try to keep it so pristine that it's just, is it even really as effective as it could be? Um, so that's been a lot of like the first meso, uh, and then just seeing how things progress. Some of the exercises that I've been doing already for a long time, which is, which is not many of them. Um, but the ones that were kind of like my bread and butter at some point, incline dumbbell benches, pull-ups, leg curls obviously i've had a harder time progressing those than you know some of the other ones and by progressing what i mean is you know there would be like i don't know like let's say like a machine lateral where it's like okay i haven't done laterals at all in years and i haven't done a cable lateral in like even longer than that so obviously every week we're gonna 
the RAR is going to like decrease a little bit. But like if I were to only add one rep, let's say to the cable lateral, the RAR would stay the same or even increase because I'm, I'm adapting to the exercise. Right. Whereas like maybe on like the leg curl, it's like I've progressed each week, but only because I've allowed the exercise to get more difficult. Right. It has my actual strength gone up, um, pull-ups and leg curls. I would say no, um, maybe leg curl, like a rep, but again, I mean, that's not, it's, this is kind of all part of it. So um, I basically told Steve, I'm not going to take measurements for a while because I just, I, I don't want it to like get to my head, <laughs> excuse me, to my head. And it's like, what, what are we going to see in that time? I mean, my average, my weekly average weight is up like maybe a pound and a half. Cause we, we really took it slow. Like initially, I think we'll probably bump that up as far as rate a little bit more now, but ultimately I'm still only trying to gain like one, maybe two pounds a month. Like we're not doing it like super drastically. So, yeah, I wasn't really expecting you to have any like objective improvements, like, oh yeah. man, my arms are like a quarter inch bigger already or anything like that. It yeah. was more subjective, like whether you're feeling like how you're feeling with these new movements that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think those neural adaptations you mentioned are, are expected for sure. But like, you know, whether, whether you feel subjectively, whether you're increasing your mind muscle connection, your execution, you're getting more out of the movements, yeah. um, feeling muscles that you haven't, you know, felt the same in prior years, et cetera. But, um, with this style of training, which I did for like a year, right. When I came out of CrossFit, it really is about comparing micro one to micro one of the second mesocycle. Mm -hmm. So you're not looking at whether you're in because the yeah. RIRs are dropping, you're not getting any tangible, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, subjectively, I like the training. I mean, one, like, frankly, I, I have made this, this comment before about how people want to say like, oh, training with good form. It's like, it takes a warrior mindset. Like to me, this, this actual training is easier. Um, it's more cumbersome and that there's more, like I'm working out five days a week, whereas before I was working out three days a week. So a lot more of my time is dedicated towards going, driving to the gym, driving back and all that. Um, but the actual training sessions are more fun because, you know, before, like I'd have an upper power day and it'd be pull-ups, overhead press, barbell bench press, rows, um, and then like a curl and like a reverse grip, like close grip bench or something. And now it'll be like incline dumbbell bench, fly, like cable flies, cable laterals, um, a tricep push down. Like it's just easier, you know, it just is. And um, but I certainly, you know, higher reps, feeling the, the muscles more. So I enjoy it. It's definitely more of like bodybuilding training. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if I'll like, you know, whenever we eventually stop working together, I don't know if I'll continue it, but I certainly don't think that stuff's any worse for muscle growth for sure, obviously. And, uh, so I, I like mixing it up and psychologically, it's just more fun, right. After doing the same thing forever and ever and ever. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I find that stuff a little less fatiguing too. I mean, there's just like, like you said, like systemically, there's really only so hard you can push a push down right. to the point where like, you know, your body's shaking and you're like on the floor panting, like, no, not really. You know? so, yeah. Well, and well, and uh, so we I'll wrap this up in a couple of minutes, but um, I did have a video. So in the last week he wants form videos as well, which makes sense like to compare. And then when I almost posted it on uh, Instagram, one of my last uh, sets, it's a, it's a machine preacher curl, right? So it's obviously not that systemically hard, but this was the last workout of the last week. And in the video, you see, I'm just like, Ugh. like, I just like, <laughs> I'm pretty done at that point. Um, and 
learning to push a new movement on a machine, even after so many years of training, there is an adaptation to that where it's like, okay, this is the 14th rep and it's really hard, but I, I'm getting used to that different type of failure I talked about. And so it's like, oh, I actually can keep going. He even made a comment. He's like, man, you really can grind those preacher curls because it's like, it seems so hard already, but it's, it's a different type of difficulty than like an eight rep max pull up or something. And so I'm like, yeah. uh, so the last week where it was like, no, you actually are supposed to hit a zero RER. I'm like, I think I can get one more. Got it. I think mm-hmm. I can get another one. It's just like, it just keeps going for some of these. So. That's amazing that that never turned into like a partial, you know, for me, it's like, I grind out a rep or two and then the next one's a partial, like I'm not able to to keep doing that. And that is actually where, like, I would probably like, I, I agree with Lyle McDonald when it comes to like the, uh, the, the whole RAR discussion and like, it should slow down, but I would say there's a couple of movements like a line leg curl where when I'm not being explosive, yes, it'll go like this and then it'll get slower and then I'll barely get it. But when I'm explosive, there's that kind of like kick in the beginning. And it's like, so I'm either going to get it all the way because that kick powered me through, or I'm not going to get it at all. Um, Mm. That makes sense. So that's uh, the gastroc is the primary mover in the leg curl in the first 15 degrees. So, uh, so if you actually kind of slowly, gradually press down on the gas during a leg curl, instead of slamming the gas, then you'll, Mm. I think it's a little more even of a, of a feeling that you'll get throughout the movement. Gotcha. All right. 45 seconds. Abel and Brian, where can we find you guys? <laughs> okay. Uh, SSD Abel on YouTube, Instagram, SSD.able because my Instagram was disabled. There you go. All right. Brian Borstein on Instagram or uh, Evolve Training Systems. You can find me that way. Yeah. Both of you guys have been disabled and as was Mike. Brian and Mike have got it back. Yeah. Abel, yeah. We're, we're praying. He's oh, next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Great talking. All right, fellas.